KPFA here in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who in light, light them up, boys, there's your picture, drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is May the 28th. Uh, 2013, I had planned to talk about um, Memorial Day today and about Liberace. I think I'll start with Liberace, the uh, HBO film, in case I don't, uh, I never can tell how much time I need to, to um, what is it, uh, deconstruct some of these things on the TV, yes, television, the opiate of the people. Now, before I start, because I know I'll forget, I did want to make one announcement. Here it is. Uh, the uh, local community has lost one of our major theater personalities. Uh, East Bay woman is Barbara Oliver. Now, I'm told there will be a memorial service at the Rhoda Theater. R-H-O-D-A. It's over there by the uh, uh, Berkeley Rep, you know, in downtown Berkeley. Uh, Barbara Oliver was uh, an actor, director. She founded the Aurora Theater Company, an amazing local uh, theater. Uh, I was thinking back, I remember doing a show with her myself. I got called in to do Miss Prism, the governess in The Importance of Being Earnest. Uh, someone, I think, had disappeared or gotten ill. Anyway, for a brief period, I was playing Miss Prism, and Barbara Oliver was doing Lady Bracknell, right? That wonderful role played by uh, all the great actresses from Dame Edith Evans to Judy Dench in the most recent movie. Uh, I remember, yes, Lady Bracknell was the... Uh, the matron or the, what is it, uh, the old broad. Yes, she rang doorbells in a Wagnerian manner. Anyway, <laughs> I I hope that uh, you will enjoy. I think the, the, now the memorial is, I guess, a remembrance. You know how those things go. At the Rhoda Theater, I haven't got the date. It will be sometime in the middle of June. So I will mention uh the date when I get it. Uh, if you call the Aurora Theater, they will know. Um, yes, they will know. And I want to start today, as I said, with Liberace. 
I couldn't. I, I just couldn't believe it. Uh, I do want to uh, do my review today because this film will be repeated all week. It was called Behind the Candelabra. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Michael Douglas plays Liberace. Matt Damon plays his young lover, 40 years younger than Liberace. Uh, yes. Uh, in the script, Michael Douglas says that his idea for that candelabra on the piano, he said he got that idea from an old Hollywood movie called A Song to Remember. <laughs> I remember it vividly. Liberace is from my generation. Those movies imprinted on us, no matter how foolish they seem to us as we age. Uh, they really, what's the word, um, stained our little souls. Cornell Wilde in that movie played Chopin. And uh, we see him dying of tuberculosis. There's a red drop of blood falls on the white piano keys. Amazing shot. Uh, Merle Oberon played his lover, George Sand, and she was portrayed as a mean lady. When Chopin is dying, she's having her portrait painted, and she won't go to hold his hand on his deathbed. Anyway, I I just got a kick out of the, uh, the script writer. I don't know whether any of that is true. Uh, could be, could be, but I thought it was clever of the script writer to put it in. Uh, I think, yes, I think that Liberace is not just sentimental, but, uh, well, let's say maudlin. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, some people really loved Walter Liberace the great showman and performer. Uh, God knows it wasn't me. I thought he was bizarre. Uh, I was always amazed at his talent to amuse. That's what uh, Noel Coward always called it. Just a talent to amuse. Uh, the blatant, gaudy display. That's what people loved, you know. His passion for glitter and gold. For what he himself called palatial kitsch. He's showing Matt Damon his uh, house and he shows him what he calls the palatial kitsch of his furnishings. Uh, the filmmakers went crazy with the sets. They really did recreate this guy's environment. Uh, Michael Douglas is mesmerizing. I actually watched the thing uh, twice. I saw it later again the same night and uh, I, I have to believe, I have to, well, I, I never, I never liked Michael Douglas. I know I don't like to talk about negative things, you know, all that I cannot love I leave alone. But neither Michael Douglas nor Matt Damon ever registered with me. And I suddenly found them really, really fascinating. Uh, Michael Douglas is a, well, he, it's a metamorphosis what he does with this character. Uh, I I think you know the Matt Damon part. You know Scott Thorson, the young lover, forty years younger than Liberace. Uh, 
it's it's what is it? It's successful maybe mostly because there is a bit where uh, the plastic surgeon <laughs> uses silicone implants to make uh, Scott look like Liberace. Uh, now, this kid was a teenager when they met in 1977. Uh, and the, what is it, the explicitness of this film is something you can only get away with uh, on HBO. I don't even know if you could get this movie distributed uh, if it were just a feature film. Talk about game changes here. Okay. Once, you know, we had to go to underground stage plays, avant-garde playwrights. You know, they had to do things in the back rooms. Anyway, now you just turn on cable and there it is. Uh, actually, I looked away a few times. <laughs> it was not just explicit. It was rather unpleasant. Uh, I don't know uh, how gay men particularly, or gay women, of course, but I, I don't know whether gay men will like this movie or how they will react. Uh, I guess it's progressive to portray gay characters, male characters, just as if, you know, they were mainstream monsters. Uh, yes, uh, can't always have them be angelic. Oscar Wilde wrote that there are no ugly loves nor handsome prisons. I guess I think love is one of those four-letter words that we need to qualify. We need a few adjectives. Oh, once upon a time, gay love was what Oscar called the love that dare not speak its name. That's it, right. Today, it not only dares to speak its name, it dares to act out all the little details Um I guess uh, we have learned that romance is just as confusing when it's in a same-sex relationship, uh, as well as, you call that, uh, the destructive qualities of a relationship. I think the, the main thing about this relationship is that uh, the older man is a father figure in quotes, but that's impossible. They're uh, lovers, and they need to try for an egalitarian relation. Oh, it's hopeless. Uh, the prison part, yes. The handsome prison. The ugly love in the handsome prison, yes. The poor young man, he wanted to be a veterinarian and he, he likes animals. He's a animal trainer for a movie in the opening scenes. And, and the worst, one of the worst moments is when he complains. He says he wanted to be a veterinarian and Liberace, Mike Douglas's Liberace says, if you want to take care of animals, pick up the dog feces. You know, they have five little dogs in the house and they're adorable. Uh, I, I guess it's no surprise, but it may not be politically correct to portray gay love affairs as, uh, well, not just less than ideal, but, uh, as raunchy, um, shallow. Uh, in the uh, end, uh, the last scene, they use the song from Man of La Mancha, you know, to dream the impossible dream. And I thought, if there's any connection between Don Quixote and Walter Liberace, I can't find it. Uh, 
the, what is it, the libido of Liberace, I guess, is what this film is about, the narcissism. Uh, Debbie Reynolds plays his mom. I did not recognize her, not for a moment. It's a small part, but she does wonderful things with it. Uh, she keeps playing a little gambling machine, you know, the, the one-armed bandits. He has one, Liberace has one in his home. She finally hits the jackpot, but there isn't any money in it, and... Uh, Liberace and the young boy and the maid in the kitchen. Everybody tries to scare up enough money to pay her for her win. And she finally looks at them and says, I'll take a check. Um, I think that Mike Douglas uh, has outdone himself here. This is this is going to be his his um, quintessential role when he leaves this planet. We're going to see these scenes uh I really cringed. I have no idea what the facts of the case are, but they've certainly made a hell of a film. Uh, I think uh, the notion that he wanted to adopt this young man uh, gives you an idea of how creepy it got. Uh, who is to say? Maybe they loved each other. It was five years, the relationship, so-called. I, Who's to say they weren't in love? Uh I just can't get past the child abuse aspect of the whole thing. Uh, Matt Damon's character is so unsophisticated. He grew up in foster homes, and he certainly could be described as prey at first. Uh, yes, they meet in 1977 in Las Vegas backstage, and uh, Liberace literally pounces. Uh, <laughs> Scott, yes, the young Scott finds himself in a sort of uh, golden prison, yes, a a gilded cage. He's just a boy in a gilded cage. Somebody said a thing of beauty is a boy forever. Yes, yes, I'm only a bird in a gilded cage, a beautiful sight to see. In the film, um, I guess... Uh, they did try to do politically, politically well, educational stuff. Uh, we see that uh, Liberace is dying. It's about 80, 1986, and he has AIDS. There's a, a headline in the newspaper. We see Elizabeth Taylor at the top and Rock Hudson's death at the age of 59. He's the first of the major film stars to come out and say that he has the uh, HIV virus and that he, well, he died of AIDS shortly after and we see pictures of him. But uh, it didn't get me ready for the incredible scene. Liberace's death scene is something I don't think I will forget. It was stunning. Uh, he says at one point he doesn't want to be remembered as an old queen who died of AIDS. Uh, he had his lawyer try to deny it all. The doctor comes out and says there's cardiac arrest and all that. But the health department steps in and um, they demand an autopsy. But he's already been embalmed, so they have to take tissue samples. Anyway, uh, grim as hell, but uh, it's suddenly... <laughs> suddenly turns into quite a weeper. The shots at the end, uh, we're at the funeral. 
And, you know, I thought of the wonderful scenes in Six Feet Under, that series about undertakers, you remember? Uh, during the kind of grim, uh, standard, generic funeral, the whole the whole thing turns into this wonderful dream, this great theatrical fantasy, and uh, uh, we see uh, a gorgeous Liberace looking just as he did in Las Vegas, those incredible capes and showgirls everywhere, masses of the white ostrich feathers, and yes, rhinestones, uh, embroidered in rhinestones and crystals, everything. Uh, I guess... I guess, you know, uh, it's it's true that uh, what Liberace gave us or gave the world is what matters. I don't know what was true about his private life or personal life. Uh, obviously, he was somewhat shallow, he says, besides cooking, sex, and shopping. You know, what, what reason is there to get up in the morning? Uh... Now, whether this stuff is to your taste or not, uh, as Noel Coward says of all show business, it is about love. Obviously, the great love of Liberace's life was his fans, his audience, the people that uh, he thought he was giving, giving, giving to. Now, his his mother said that Liberace was a taker, uh she says he, he had a twin, and the twin was a stillborn, and Liberace weighed 13 pounds. And as she says, uh, he took, I, I suppose she meant, he, maybe, maybe he uh, took the life out of his twin brother, yes. And then she said the mom gives him what he she can, but then the world has to give him what he wants. And obviously he just went out and took it. Poor bastard. Uh, he had the body of an athlete. Uh, I, he had the voice of Tinkerbell. I, I remember uh, thinking that Mike Douglas is—he's not just perfect for the role. He—he he does something. He uses his own creepiness and weirdness. Uh, the strange sweetness that was the real Liberace. That isn't quite there, that tinkling bell in the voice, that childlike voice. It wasn't Tiny Tim exactly, but it was all magic and tinsel. Uh, the women just loved him. I still don't know why. Uh, I think he was performing for his mother throughout. Uh, I find that fascinating uh there's a scene in which his mother dies, and of course, young Scott is very sympathetic. Yes, um, he's kind of down to earth, Liberace, about it. He just says yes, and there's the funeral, and then finally he says, Now I'm free. And he starts going to underworld adult bookstores, really awful places, and his young lover Scott says, "Remember, you're, you know, you're a famous personality. It will ruin you if they find out uh, you're in these awful places." And Liberace points out that uh, I forget which London paper, what 
British paper had once uh, accused him of being gay and so forth. And he sued them. He sued the paper and won. Anyway, uh, HBO is going to have repeats of this show uh, all week. Whatever you might think of uh, Walter Liberace, I think this movie is an astonishing achievement. Uh, I don't know, how, how can you make such shallow people so interesting? I mean, interesting to each other. Only five years they had. Uh, I, I thought maybe you could compare it to the movie Wild about Oscar Wilde, but it's not really comparable, um, except for the maybe the group of people, the rent boys that Oscar had around him, the young men. This, uh, you know, Oscar's phony baloney was that this was, that they were platonic relationships. That is, Plato slept with little boys, of course, uh, weren't platonic at all. But uh, the the notion that an older man is what a young boy needs to, uh, what is that, uh, prepare him for life in the world. You will find this in Tony Kirshner's play, uh, Angels in America. Yes, the... The uh, the fellow Roy Cohen, perfectly awful man. Yes, he says that the way to be successful is to find an older man to guide you. Uh, I just kept thinking, what do these people really talk about? Uh, I I guess yes. Is this all there is? I kind of I kind of wanted to see something about all that music at the end. One of the lawyer, I think, at the funeral says that there is a foundation and that it will allow some young people to study music who couldn't ordinarily afford it. Uh, I just thought, I think Debbie Reynolds nailed it. Yes, she says, yes, it's not luck. It's who you are. This guy was, uh, in a way, a total original uh now, that film will probably be repeating for a month or so. Uh, I was thinking that uh, the only way to escape from Memorial Day, the holy day, uh, holiday, holy day, was to do things like watch Liberace and anything else I could find on television. Uh, I didn't even listen to all the stuff about the commemorations and the president and so forth. Uh, I just have terrible troubles with Memorial Day. Uh, when I was a kid during World War II, I lived in La Jolla. It's a seaside town down south, 14 miles from San Diego. And uh, my father was stationed there at the Naval Hospital. Much of my childhood was spent on the beach, especially in a little place called the Cove. It was a beatific spot, a natural breakwater, a little rock bridge and tide pools and all sorts of seascape wonders. Ah, Memorial Day, yes. They always had rough water swims down there at the Cove. They swam from La Jolla across the the water there to Del Mar, about three miles, I think. They'd have people like Johnny Weissmuller, you know, Tarzan and Boy came down and did their bit on their 
surfboards and so forth. Anyway, one year during the war, I think it was 1943, I think so, they staged uh, an amphibious landing, you know, like the landing that was coming uh, in Normandy. They wanted to show the people on the beach how the fighting men disembarked. They used flamethrowers. It was all very dramatic and theatrical. And then for a climax, there was an explosion. There was a bomb in the water out near my favorite reef. My magic spot just under the water there, a place where where the little mermaid sat to watch the prince on the shore every evening. I used to go out there and sit on the reef. And I thought I could see the prince there uh, on the beach. So it was 1943 then that, uh, well, that was when my fairy tale died. All those underwater creatures are gone now. See, I took a look in 1974. They were gone already. All those golden fish and all those dozens of sea creatures. Um, this doesn't look terrible now. It has some kind of green, some little shrubby stuff uh the abalone are all gone. Uh, I think that was the freeways, the highways. And they were building the the uh, freeways. All the stuff got dumped into the ocean. Abalone beds died. But uh, I think I think my misery was more related to the assault on my imagination. I remember how upset my mother was with all that noise, you know, the amphibious landing. There were all these dead fish from that bomb in the water and the flamethrowers seared the beach and the rock formations. And oh, that was a beach where the lifeguard used to come down with a fork and pick up the kelp at the edge of the sea every morning so it would be pristine for the bathers. Of course, I didn't know it damn thing about what was going on in Europe or out in the Pacific. You know where my father went during the last year of the war. Uh, I won't repeat all the things she told me about. Uh, I made a list of them here and I just don't want to bring you down. He lost many of his uh, corpsmen, you know, the medical aides and the nurses and they were just as likely to get killed as the combatants. Anyway, when my father came home, he had iron gray hair. He'd gone out there with thick head of black hair. He was changed, of course, as are all those who experience man's inhumanity to man, to man, women, and children over and over and over. War after war, my mother was collateral damage. Uh, she died in 1947. Uh, just general uh, dysfunction, misery, and alcohol. My older sister was in love with one of the boys who didn't come back. Uh, a nurse friend of my mother's came to live with us to have her baby. That happened to a number of women lost in the war. Yes, their husbands lost in the war. Uh, my father lived until 1961. He practiced medicine in all the places where he was most needed. He was here in the East Bay when he died. Had an office down in Richmond near the Brookside Hospital. He used to make house calls in the rough neighborhoods. He's buried over in San Francisco at the Presidio. 
as a commander in the Navy, he got a 21-gun salute, what he called a 21-son galoot. I didn't want those guns. I didn't want to hear all those guns, but tradition ran out. I uh, don't celebrate Memorial Day because remembrance is for those who have forgotten. I have a wretched memory. I never forget a thing. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air again next Tuesday at this same time. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. selling off our post offices. As many as 4,000 around the country may be on the chopping block, including the gorgeous one in downtown Berkeley. Shockingly, Senator Dianne Feinstein's husband is the real estate agent for the deal. All are welcome to the public banking conference to find out how public banks in post offices can save this critical service. Speakers include our own Ying Lee, past Berkeley City Councilwoman Cal's Gray Breshen, and Postal Union President James Sober. Plus, Matt Taibbi, Ellen Brown, Brigitte John's daughter and Gar Alperovitz. It's June 2nd through 4th in San Rafael and benefits the Public Banking Institute. To register, go to publicbanking.org or call 510-482-2856.